0: his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Did you know that John the Baptist is recognized as a true prophet of God? in all three of the so-called major religions of the world. Obviously Christianity, but also Judaism and Islam. Matthew 21, 26 says that all the Jewish people in Palestine in the time of Jesus believed that John the Baptist was a true prophet. And the first century Jewish historian Josephus confirms that as well. But also the Quran, the scriptures of Islam say in Quran 3 38 through 39 that John the Baptist is, quote, outstanding among men, utterly chaste, and a prophet, get that, a prophet from among the righteous. And the Lord Jesus, of course, taught that John the Baptist was a true prophet. And even beyond that, he insisted in Matthew 11:11 that among those born of women, there has not risen anyone who is greater than John the Baptist. Now, the three major world religions agree on very little else. But they do agree on the fact that John the Baptist is a true prophet of God, and that makes John the Baptist a very remarkable man. Because the test for a true prophet of God is laid down for us in Deuteronomy 18, 20 through 22. It insists that everything a true prophet says in the name of the Lord must come true. True. If even a single one of his prophecies fail, he is to be regarded as a false prophet and to be put to death. Consequently, if John the Baptist is indeed, as Christianity, Islam, and Judaism affirm, a true prophet of God, all that he prophesies must be true. And the reason that is so important is because John the Baptist's primary purpose as a prophet was to bear testimony to the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we will see, John the Baptist insists that Jesus is Almighty God who is going to pour out divine wrath against unrepentant sinners and is going to bless God's people— by fulfilling the ancient covenant forever and ever and ever. He is the Emmanuel. He is God in human form. So here's my point. For groups like Jews or Muslims to insist that John the Baptist is a true prophet from God and then reject Jesus as both God and King— is self-contradictory because if john the baptist is a prophet of god then jesus is the god of the prophets matthew gives us several features of the early ministry of the prophet john the baptist here in matthew 3 1 through 6. first of all he offers us a description of the preaching of John the Baptist. And we could summarize that preaching with this simple statement, prepare for the coming of the king by repenting of your sin. John's message is summarized in verse two, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like the prophets of Old Testament times, John comes preaching a message of repentance. Now, what is repentance? Well, the Greek word translated as repent is metanoeo. It has two components. Meta, a preposition which means after, and noeo, which means to be of the mind or to think. Consequently, metanoeo refers to an afterthought, or what we would refer to in colloquial English, English as a second thought. Now, we all know what we mean by second thoughts, right? If a man has uh, gotten up in the morning and he's overcome with heartburn, he might say, boy, I'm, I'm having second thoughts about those four chili dogs I ate on the 4th of July or, or something like that. To have second thoughts about something means to regret that you did it. And sure enough, the word metanoeo in Greek, repent, has strong connotations of regret. It means that we are no longer pleased or satisfied with the sinful lives that we have lived and are living. We deeply regret our sin and our failings before the holy God. And we have an intense desire to abandon that old lifestyle and live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Now, true repentance entails much more than mere regret, but one of its key elements is that deep regret. And the reason I say it entails more is because of Paul's definition in 2 Corinthians 7, 9. He explains that true sorrow is more, godly sorrow, repentance, is more than just sorrow or regret, but instead, It involves a permanent change of heart. It's a repentance not to be repented of, Paul says. Now, in the New Testament, repentance of sin, this deep regret for our sinful past and our longing to abandon that sinful lifestyle is described as both a duty and responsibility, but also a divine gift. In other words, Scripture commands all sinners to repent, and yet it describes repentance as something that is given by the Savior, Acts 5.31, or granted by God, Acts 11.18, 2 Timothy 2.25. And here's the point. Although we must repent of our sins, regret our sinful past, and long to abandon our sinful lifestyle for salvation, that is something we cannot do all by ourselves completely on our own. Our depravity is so deep that a gracious God must impart repentance to us we don't repent of our sins because we're better than someone else or smarter than someone else our very repentance is solely to be attributed to god's mercy and grace and our baptist confession the baptist faith and message 2000 makes that abundantly clear when it describes both repentance of sin and faith in the lord jesus christ as inseparable graces That language is drawn from the New Hampshire Baptist Confession, and it's clear in that context that graces refer to grace gifts. God graciously enables us to respond to him with the repentance that he demands. And this call to repentance was central to the preaching of John the Baptist, the preaching of our Lord Jesus, and the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts repentance of sin coupled with faith in jesus as God's savior and king is an essential requirement for salvation and john goes on to explain why he calls sinners to repentance it's for the kingdom of heaven is at hand the, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of god the two phrases are equivalent they're synonymous was the primary emphasis of the preaching of both john the baptist and the lord jesus and there's a lot of confusion about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of god in scripture some assume that it merely refers to a place the heavenly realm the abode of god some people think that it refers to an era of salvation history the millennial reign of the lord jesus but in fact The phrase kingdom of heaven refers most basically to God's reign over those who submit to the authority of the messianic king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think about this in light of Old Testament history. Who was the first king of Israel? Don't say it out loud because you might be tempted to say Saul. And my answer would be, Who was the first king of Israel? Absolutely, it was God. Uh, God is repeatedly described as king of the Israelites in the Old Testament scriptures. And this changes when we get to 1 Samuel. Because during the days of the prophet Samuel, the people began to cry out, Give us a king to reign over us and judge us. And the Lord says to Samuel, they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them, 1 Samuel 8, 7. And God warned the people through the prophet that if they insisted on having a human king, they would live to regret it. The king would oppressively tax them, would force their sons to be warriors in his army, shedding their blood on the battlefield, and and on and on. There would be tons of negative consequences of rejecting divine kingship and embracing a human king. But the people insisted in that rebellious act nevertheless. And sure enough, they lived to deeply regret it as all of the warnings that the prophet gave about human kingship were fulfilled. And from that time forward, the Old Testament prophets began to anticipate the day when God's kingship over his people would be restored. And one of the highlights in the Old Testament of this emphasis on divine kingship is the book of Daniel. Daniel. In Daniel 6:26, Darius, the king of a worldwide empire, recognized Daniel's God is the living God who endures forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, His dominion will be forever. Daniel 344 describes the kingdom of God as an eternal kingdom that will overcome and replace all human kingdoms God's rule as king of creation and then the pinnacle I think of the book of Daniel with regard to this theme is Daniel 7 9 through 10 the great son of man vision or the ancient of days is seated on his royal throne and the son of man descends on the clouds of heaven to appear before him and we are told that he is given dominion glory and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples nations and men of every language might serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed so here's my point The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is the restoration of God's sovereign rule over the entire cosmos, including every human kingdom. And that royal authority is concentrated in the messianic king, the son of man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You know, I'm sure that Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospels is what? It's Son of Man. And his favorite preaching topic is what? The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And the book of Daniel is where these two themes intersect, making it clear that when the Lord Jesus refers to the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about the reign of the Son of Man over people of every nation, tribe, and tongue forever and ever and ever. Now, the kingdom... Of the Lord Jesus Christ has two major facets. The kingdom was consummated in Jesus' first coming, excuse me, inaugurated in Jesus' first coming. It will not be consummated until his second coming. Right now, the Lord Jesus has absolute authority over those who have repented of their sins, believed on Him as God's Savior and King, and have submitted to His messianic rule. But the day is coming at His return when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Sadly, that confession for many will be far, far too late. So late that rather than them enjoying the blessings that the kingdom of the Son of Man brings, they will experience horrifying, terrible punishment instead. The outpouring of God's wrath by the Messianic King over unrepentant sinners. And because John knows that that judgment is coming, with the arrival of the king, he says, repent. Repent on the one hand so that you can enjoy the blessings of the messianic rule. But on the other hand, repent so that you can escape the wrath that will be outpoured for your rebellion against the messianic rule. And this wrath that I'm talking about is going to be described by John in vivid detail in verses 7 through 12 that will be the focus of our study next week. Here's the point. The kingdom of heaven will spell disaster for those who have refused to repent of their sins and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus as God, Savior, and King. And so John says repentance is urgent and it is necessary. He calls people to repent without delay. And if you have not bowed the knee to Jesus as God's Savior, and King, if you've not confessed Him as your Savior and Lord, then I join John the Baptist in urging you, in pleading with you to repent right now. And John called people to express their repentance through baptism verse 6 explains that John's baptism was accompanied by the confession of their sins which was a verbal expression of their repentance and baptism was the active expression of their repentance how so? John's teaching is that repentance is not just something that we feel, it is something that we express. And we express genuine repentance through action. Those actions that express our repentance are what John refers to as the fruits of repentance. We begin to live life a new and different way and that shows that our regret, over our past sins is genuine and our desire to abandon that sinful lifestyle is genuine. But in addition to fruits of repentance, like those who stole, stealing no more, and those who abused others, abusing them no more, so forth, the kinds of things that are spelled out in John's preaching in the Gospel of Luke, John also requires as an expression of repentance baptism. Now, how does baptism express repentance? Well, primarily, baptism served as an admission that no one can be right with God apart from personal repentance of their sin and devotion to the coming one, the Lord Jesus. There were several views of salvation that were held by Jews in the first century. There were some who thought that if you wanted to be saved, you had to keep all the law all the time. We can document that in rabbinic literature. There were some who thought that if you wanted to be saved, you had to keep most of the law most of the time. We can document that in rabbinic literature. But probably the number one view of salvation in first century Judaism was the view that we find in the Avot Tractate of the Mishnah, quote, all Israel shall be saved. And the view was that if you were a descendant of Father Abraham and you had been properly circumcised, if male, your salvation was guaranteed by virtue of the Abrahamic covenant. Unless you committed some horrendous sin uh, like blaspheming Jehovah. And John's baptism is a direct assault on that false view of salvation. And that becomes very clear when John teaches just a little bit later in verse 9, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise up from these very stones children for Abraham. Abraham. What's he talking about in context? Well, he's addressing a group of people who believe that their lineage through Father Abraham guaranteed their salvation. And John is saying that is a false security. And his baptism of repentance was a demonstration that Jewish people were announcing that false security. Because although the Jewish people of the first century often immersed themselves, in fact, they did it repeatedly again and again, anytime they contracted some ritual impurity that was forbidden in the Old Testament or in the teaching of the rabbis. They didn't practice among Jews what might be called a once-for-all baptism, a a kind of immersion that would never be repeated again. They only administered a once-for-all baptism to Gentiles who wanted to become proselytes. If you were a Gentile, in other words, you were not an Israelite, you were not a descendant of Father Abraham, but you wanted to enjoy the privileges of the nation of Israel, the Jews required that you do several things— You had to offer sacrifice in the temple if male you had to be circumcised even as an adult you had to surrender to the 613 commandments of the torah and you also had to receive a ritual immersion a baptism so to speak now here's the point jews didn't baptize fellow jews Jews baptized only Gentiles because it was assumed that anyone who was Jewish had their salvation already guaranteed. They didn't need to receive the gift of salvation. They already had assurance of that. It was only Gentiles who needed to repent of their sin and take special steps in order to experience God's grace. And when John the Baptist requires baptism of Jews, he's doing something earth-shaking. He's asking them to receive what they thought only Gentiles needed, only pagans needed. And in the process, he is forcing them to admit that lineage from Father Abraham alone does not guarantee salvation hence do not say we have abraham for our father that doesn't accomplish anything for you in terms of your relationship with god your forgiveness of sin the promise of eternal life Uh, don't say we have abraham for our father no god is able to raise up from these very rocks children of abraham and here's the point that john is making We do not become children of God by having Abraham's blood in our veins. We become children of God by having Abraham's faith in our hearts. That, of course, is gonna be one of the emphases of Paul's teaching in his epistle to the Romans where the Christian faith in justification and in Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a reenactment of the kind of faith that Abraham expressed in the book of Genesis. So requiring the baptism of Jews served as a confession of their sins, an acknowledgement of their need for the mercy of God, a recognition of the fact that God has children, but he doesn't have grandchildren. And no one is automatically a child of God just because of who their ancestors were, even if that ancestor is the patriarch Abraham. I think that's a lesson that people in our culture today need to learn as well. Because it's not just first century Jews who thought that God has grandchildren and salvation's guaranteed because of your heritage most of the people I encounter on the street today have the very same mistaken notion. Are you a Christian? You might ask, well, well, sure, I'm an American, aren't I? And I grew up in church, and my parents were Christians, and my, my grandparents were Christians, as if that lineage, that heritage, somehow guarantees that we are a child of God. It is does not. The New Testament is clear that no one becomes a child of God by virtue of physical birth. We only become children of God by virtue of spiritual birth. And that is what John the Baptist is urging repentant Jews to experience. To recognize that a relationship with God does not depend on the blood in our veins, it depends on the repentance and the faith in our hearts. And After this description of the preaching of John, Matthew goes on to cite for us an Old Testament prophecy about John. In verse 3, Matthew quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3 a prophecy that described John the Baptist that was given by the prophet several centuries before the birth of John or John's Christ. And this prophecy about John the Baptist tells us some very important truths, both about John's mission and about John's Messiah. First of all, it describes his mission. John's mission is to be one of preparing the way of the Lord. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway, the prophet said. And he goes on to describe in context how every valley will be raised up, how every mountain will be brought low, how the crooked paths will be made straight, how the rough paths will be made smooth. What's Isaiah speaking of? Well, he's actually describing the practice of a royal herald. The messenger who went out before the king as the king was traveling. The herald would go before the king and he would encounter people of one village or another and say, the king is coming, the king is coming, you need to make preparations for him. And what were the preparations? Well, they entailed going out and repairing the roads, filling the potholes, straightening the winding pathways so that the royal entourage could pass safely and comfortably through that region. And when this kind of imagery is used to describe the coming prophet, John the Baptist, he's being portrayed as the forerunner of the messianic king, the one who prepares for the arrival of the king. Obviously, he's not going to be involved in literal road repair. He prepares for the coming of the king by his message calling people to repentance. And here's the point. John is preparing the nation of Israel for a royal welcome to the Messiah, the anointed King. He is the forerunner, preparing the way for the one he describes as the coming one, the coming Messiah. But not only does the prophecy describe John's mission Even more importantly, it describes John's Messiah. Because look very carefully at the wording of Isaiah 40, verse 3. It says, prepare the way of the king? No. Prepare the way of the Messiah? No. It says, prepare the way of the Lord. And in Matthew's Greek, the word is kurios, which is the normal Greek translation of the Hebrew divine name Yahweh or Jehovah. And we can confirm that that is the sense here if we flip in our Old Testament back to Isaiah 40 verse 3 because there we will find the word LORD written in all capital letters. And that signifies that the word LORD is serving as the English translation for the Hebrew divine name, the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it's clear in the context of the Gospel of Matthew, that John came to prepare for the coming of the coming one that he identifies as Jesus, the Messiah. John prepares the way for Jesus. But all of the Gospel writers apply to John a prophecy about a prophet preparing the way for the coming of Yahweh, the coming of Jehovah, Now, you see how it works in terms of correspondence. If John is the prophet of Isaiah 40 verse 3, then Jesus is the Lord of Isaiah 40 verse 3, which means not merely messianic king. But God Almighty, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who created everything that exists. By applying Isaiah 43 in the way all the gospel writers do, It's made abundantly clear that Jesus is more than just a great man or a religious teacher. He is the God-man. He is second person of the Trinity, the Emmanuel, God with us, deity incarnate, God in human flesh. And that's going to be clear if we took the time to keep on tracking with that prophecy in Isaiah 43. Because in the New Testament, when you have a brief quotation of Old Testament scripture, New Testament scholars recognize it's an example of what we refer to as metalepsis. In other words, the prophets' words that are quoted are intended to bring to mind the entire broader context of that little excerpt. When they pull out that excerpt and quote only that, it's not because they think that's all that applies. They're saving space and they're using that little snippet of Scripture that they quote as a segue bringing to our mind the entire prophecy as a whole that'll become clear if we take a look at the parallel in Luke's gospel because Luke goes on to quote and apply to the Lord Jesus not just Isaiah 40 verse 3 but also verse 4 also verse 5 think about how it continues repair the way of the Lord make straight in the desert a highway for our God in other words the application of Isaiah 43 to the Lord Jesus confirms not once, but twice in a single verse, Jesus' deity. He is Lord in the highest sense, all capital letters, Jehovah, and He is God as well. And that's going to be confirmed if you keep working through the prophecy and see that climax. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. The glory of the Lord was revealed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, where the glory of God was embodied in human form. Or as John puts it, the word was made flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Not only does Matthew inform us about the preaching of John, the prophecy about John, he also points us to an Old Testament prototype of John. You might be puzzled when you get to verse 4 and find that Matthew describes for us the kind of garments— that John the Baptist wore. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Have you ever considered how seldom the New Testament makes reference to the kind of garments that a person wore? Doesn't mention it much, that's why so much Christian art has gotten this so terribly wrong. If you look at the history of Christian art, what you'll find is that artists tend to dress biblical characters in the garments that were in fashion in their own time. So, artists from the medieval period who are picturing biblical characters put them in medieval garb and so forth. Those in France make them look like they're wearing French garments, and those in Britain make them look like they're wearing British garments. We know better now, but we can understand why the ancient artists struggled to depict the garments of biblical characters, because frankly, they are so seldom described in Scripture. But this verse is a profound exception. We know exactly what John the Baptist wore, he wore a garment made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Why in the world are we given these details? Well, it's actually intended to show us that John the Baptist is the fulfillment of yet another Old Testament prophecy, not just Isaiah chapter 40 but also Malachi chapter 4. Because Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The prophet's speaking of the day when God will come to purify and to punish. And he says that the Lord's coming judgment will be preceded by a repetition of the ministry of the prophet Elijah. Now, these verses are the very last verses of our English Old Testament. And they form a helpful segue to the New Testament where we find very early on a depiction of the ministry of John the Baptist, for John is the fulfillment of the prophet like Elijah prophecy. Who is Elijah? Well, Elijah the Tishbite was a prophet from the deserts of Gilead. He was possibly the most powerful prophet in all of the Old Testament scriptures. He was God's instrument for more mighty miracles than any other Old Testament figure, with the possible exception of Moses, maybe Elisha. And there are several New Testament texts that identify John as a new Elijah figure. The Lord Jesus will do that in Matthew 12, 14, where he'll say, John the Baptist is the Elijah figure who was foretold. We see it also in Luke 1:17, where the angel announces that John the Baptist will be the Malachi 4 prophecies fulfillment. That is, he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And the gospels highlight the many similarities between the Old Testament Elijah and the New Testament Elijah John the Baptist. After all, uh, both were prophets whose major message was repent. Old Testament Elijah came from the deserts, the wilderness. And where does John conduct his ministry? In the wilderness. Elijah confronted the sins of a king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel. And John the Baptist is famous for confronting the sins of a king and queen, Herod and Herodias. And we could keep on going with one parallel after another, but a very important parallel appears right here in verse 4 of Matthew 3. Because 2 Kings 1.8 tells us that Elijah wore a belt made of animal skins with garments woven of animal hair and when matthew tells us that john wore a garment made of camel hair and a belt made of animal skin he is highlighting the fact that these two figures wore similar garb that john is the fulfillment of the picture of the Old Testament, Elijah. What does that mean? It means John the Baptist is not just the fulfillment of Isaiah 43 through six, but he is also the fulfillment of that Malachi 4 prophecy about Elijah the prophet coming before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Think about the theological implications of John's fulfillment of that prophecy too. Who's coming? Would Elijah the prophet precede, according to Malachi four, five, and six? Let me read it again. The scripture says, "Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and dreadful day of the." Doesn't say king. Doesn't say Messiah. Doesn't say Savior. It says. Tell me again, Lord. And how is Lord spelled in Malachi 4, 5, and 6? All capital letters showing us that that's the English translation of the Hebrew divine name. So the point is, Elijah would precede the coming of Yahweh, the God of Israel, john comes to prepare for the coming of jesus of nazareth if john is the fulfillment of the elijah prophecy then jesus is the fulfillment of the day of the lord prophecy that's why the apostle paul can actually use the phrase, day of the Lord and day of Christ, interchangeably in his epistles. His point is, Christ is the Lord, all capital letters, whose day of judgment was foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, we're going to see this again and again in the ministry of John the Baptist. Next week, I'll give you just a little prelude here We're going to see John preaching that Jesus will perform the baptism of the Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, who is it that always pours out the Spirit? It's God. No exceptions. So, John describes Jesus, the coming one, as doing what only God can do. Similarly, John says that the coming one is going to pour out eschatological wrath bringing the wrath of God against unrepentant sinners. In the Old Testament, who is it that always, always pours out eschatological wrath? Once again, it is Almighty God. And again and again, the preaching of John the Baptist will assign to the ministry of the Lord Jesus what the Old Testament describes God alone as doing. And the point that John is making is that Isaiah knew when he talked about when he described the coming Messiah as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The prophet Isaiah knew what he was talking about when he described the Messiah as as the virgin born Emmanuel, God with us. So, in fact, there is not just one big emphasis to the preaching of John the Baptist, repent of your sins, and we certainly need to do that. The other big emphasis of the preaching of John the Baptist is the confession of Jesus' deity, his identity as Almighty God. So, you see now, we're back where we started. All three so-called major world religions... Acknowledge that John the Baptist is a true prophet from God. But remember, if a true prophet from God, every prophecy he utters must be true, no exceptions. And John the Baptist says that Jesus is eschatological judge. He is the one who will pour out God's final wrath and that he's also the one who will perform the baptism of the Spirit. He ascribes to the Lord Jesus the mighty acts that only God can perform. And in doing so, he makes it clear that Jesus is not just fully human, but fully divine, the God-man. And so, the point is clear. If John the Baptist is a prophet of God, then jesus is the god of the prophets would you bow your head and close your eyes the coming one came but he's coming again and in his second coming the kingdom will be consummated And those who are truly children of God will experience indescribable blessings, but those who have refused to repent and believe will experience eternal wrath. So I plead with you the same thing that John the Baptist bled with the people of his day. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is near because the king is coming again. And he won't come like the first time, meek and mild. He'll come with a double-edged sword to slay the wicked, to sentence them to the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. A while time remains. Confess to God that you are a sinner. Acknowledge to him you know that you deserve his punishment. Tell him that you want to live life a different way, that you want to abandon the sins of your past. And acknowledge to him that you cannot possibly do it on your own. And then confess faith in the Lord Jesus as the one who saves the one who died on the cross for our sins in our place so that we can be forgiven, and the one who performs the baptism of the Spirit that transforms us from the inside out so that we can live life a new and different way. Submit to Jesus' authority as the promised king, the one who has the right to rule and reign over your life and then confess your faith in Jesus as Almighty God, as the very embodiment of Yahweh Jehovah, the God of Israel. And through that act of faith, you can receive the gift of forgiveness of sin, the life-changing power of the Spirit, and the promise of an eternity of blessing with our God. And if that is your confession this morning, in a few minutes when we sing together, I'm going to invite you to come forward and tell me that you have confessed faith in Jesus as God, Savior, and King today, and that you want to receive the baptism of repentance that John's ministry began we can set an appointment for your baptism and we can tell you what the next steps are in your new christian life dear father we commit this invitation to you we pray that through the preaching of the prophet john the gospel of the lord jesus has been made clear we pray that your spirit will move sinners to repentance of sin and faith In the Lord Jesus Christ, our only hope for eternity, in Jesus' name, amen.